Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in Acts chapter 18, so if you have your bulletin, there's an outline inside that kind of helps you follow along, and the best part about following the outline is you'll know when I'm almost done. Because when we get to the end of it, that'll mean we're almost done. And then uh, also, if you have the Bible app, you can follow along there as well. And uh, we are in Acts chapter 18. The purpose of the book of Acts there in your notes or there on the screens is this. Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through spirit-empowered church, despite internal obstacles and external opposition. That phrase, internal obstacles can be misleading. It doesn't always mean there's a sin issue. It just means there's an obstacle. How many of you realize there's times in your life where an obstacle presents itself in your life, and it's not necessarily because you sinned. It's not because you were an evil person, but life just kind of unfolds and there's obstacles, right? Um, and so that's the case today. And so the title of today's message is this, I believe, now what? What happens after you believe? What is the, uh, the mode of a believer after they put their trust in Christ? And so as we look forward, we're going to look at Acts chapter 18 and verse 23. This is uh, the end of Paul's second journey and the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. If you're not paying attention, you blink your eyes, you're going to miss it. As soon as he ends his second missionary journey... He spends some time resting, but then he immediately goes in the next verse and starts the third missionary journey. So we'll begin in verse 23. It says this, after spending some time there, he departed (coughs) and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, scripture's unclear. Luke, when he's writing this account, we don't know how much time Paul spent back at his home church in Antioch. But he moved quickly, it would seem, to Ephesus. Now remember, uh, many chapters ago and and probably a few years ago, uh, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. That was his heart's desire. But twice, once uh, God said, absolutely not, you're not going. Uh, The second time he wanted to go, the, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit forbade him to go. And in Paul's life, it wasn't necessarily... Uh, the answer that he was looking for. And in each one of those instances, it almost felt like God said no, but now we see in reality it was no, but you have to wait. It wasn't no, it was not now, which is just as frustrating, am I right? When you're praying for your life and you're praying for your kids or you're praying for your career or you're praying for different uh, moments in your life, not now can be just as frustrating as no. In fact, no is sometimes the preferred answer. Because if it's no, at least you know it's not going to happen. But when you get a sense that God's saying not now, it really forces you as a Christian to put full trust in who God is, not necessarily what he does for you. And there's a difference. When we put our faith and trust in what God does, well, then one day he's going to do something you don't agree with. One day he's going to do something that makes you frustrated or makes you rethink choices in your life. But when our faith and trust is in who God is, it allows us to trust him even when it's the frustrating response, not now. That seemed to happen in Paul's life quite often. Now he gets to go to Ephesus. He gets to go to that region. And since Paul's first trip 
uh, first focus on this trip was strengthening the disciples, he ends up going back to churches that were already founded on previous journeys. Um, if you're following in your notes, Paul, Paul's passion was building disciples, not just gaining converts. So the, the emphasis for Paul was not just leading people to Jesus, but also after they've uh, come to Jesus, now giving them tools and ways for them to be strengthened as disciples. So he was an evangelist, but he also had a heart for people after they became followers. I think about Paul traveling to churches that were already established, and I, and I think about what he would ask those churches, having established the church, leaving for a few months and coming back and now showing up at their door. What are the kind of questions Paul would ask? If Paul uh, was doing a tour of the Northwest in 2023, and he walked into our church, I wonder what kind of questions he would ask. I think he would ask questions like this, um, are you growing as a disciple? And then we would all say yes, right? And then I feel like he'd ask, what's the evidence of that? What's the evidence of you growing as a disciple? Yes, you have come to Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, now what? Now what? What has changed in your life now that you have followed Jesus? Are you still as resentful as you were before? Are you still as unforgiving? Are you more loving, more kind? Uh, is there any change in your finances since becoming a follower of Jesus Christ? Right? Because if all that stays the same, what's the point? So Paul would go back to the churches. He would identify the churches he had already established or that were already established outside of his help. And he'd go back and he would go back to strengthen them. He would ask these kinds of questions. How strong of a disciple we are? Uh, what has strengthened our walk? What's the evidence of our faith? We're going to read on because the story that unfolds is quite interesting. Verse 24, it says this. Now a Jew named Apollos, everyone say Apollos. A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he, only, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So as Paul uh, is doing his work in Galatia, Phrygia, this other gentleman named Apollos came from Alexandria to Ephesus. What do we call it when someone leaves the place they're in to go to another place to share the gospel? We would often call that person a, yeah, just like Paul was a missionary and we identified one, two, three journeys now. Here's Apollos going on his own missionary journey. And by many measures, he's a remarkable man. He's eloquent man. Uh, think of your pastor there, right? Like he's an eloquent man. <laughs> He was mighty in the scriptures. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Uh, he was competent. He was mighty in the scriptures. That means he knew, he knew what he read, what he had access to. He knew it well. That doesn't happen by accident, right? You can kind of go back and think, if he's competent in scriptures, that means at one point he wasn't competent, and he took steps in his life to become competent. He read them. He studied them. He immersed himself in them. He was fervent in the spirit. This means to boil in the spirit, to bubble over with enthusiasm. And so he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. But there's that phrase in that verse that says this, though he only knew the baptism of John. 
So we see that the reputation of John the Baptist is widely known through the Roman Empire, reaching as far as Alexandria. And Apollos knew the work of John the Baptist. It is likely that he preached a similar message, which was repent. John the Baptist would go around and he was an odd duck, but he had this very consistent message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the Messiah is here. He's coming, he's here. And so he was a well-educated man, he's a well-traveled man, but he only knew the baptism of John. This is interesting information. He didn't know much about Jesus, about what Uh, what was the full gospel, the full truth of who Jesus was. But what he did know, he did accurately, and he did it with a lot of passion. Let's read on. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, hey, we recognize them, right? Yeah, we just met them last week. These are the friends of Paul. Uh, They're tent makers by trade. They worked with leather. Um, These were Paul's uh, buddies there in the last chapter uh, when he went to Ephesus. So when uh, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, this is awesome. Paul met this couple early in chapter 18. They went to work with him from Corinth to Ephesus. And can you imagine? So there's Aquila, there's Priscilla, and they're listening to Apollos preach. Now, I've seen it on Sunday mornings where, you know, if you're sitting next to one and you give them the nudge, Right? Like if someone's, uh, if you have something to tell someone, how many of you know couples, they can, they can speak to each other without talking, right? I think this is what's happening. I think Aquila and Priscilla, while he's speaking, kind of give each other the nudge and say, man, he's eloquent, he's competent, but the message he preaches kind of falls short. It's incomplete just a little bit. What he is saying is 100% right on, but boy, he's missing just a little bit. And they kind of nudge one another, and they, they, they say to him afterwards, um, Apollos, would you, would you like to come over for, for lunch today? Maybe they invited him to dinner, but they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Aquila and Priscilla saw the need for someone to be discipled and took the lead. This is such an amazing passage. Here's Aquila and Priscilla. They have heard the full gospel. They are working with Paul. They hear this young man who is, who is eloquent, who's competent up to a certain point, and they pull him aside. And, and mind you, they're not pastors. They're not full-time. They didn't work in the ministry, but they end up showing him the gospel. He knew that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He knew what the scripture said when John, when the, or what John the Baptist would encourage him when John the Baptist would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Apollos would go and he would preach a similar message and he would say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming. It's time for you to repent. It's time for you to come and acknowledge the savior that is coming. But it was just falling just a little bit short. And so here is Aquila and Priscilla. And I, I would love to be there in their, in their tent, in the tent or in the courtyard, wherever they might be, where they're explaining to Apollos, the kingdom of heaven, it's here. Do you know what happened to Jesus? Do you know the rest of the story, Paul Harvey would say? Jesus would 
go on and he would heal people. And Apollos would say, I know that. Jesus would go and he would preach to thousands of people. And Apollos would say, I know that. And he would say, and Jesus would go and he would, he would heal people from their diseases. He would, he, he would show mighty works. He would go to the synagogue and the Pharisees wouldn't accept him. And Apollos said, I know that. And then he said, and then there was this time where Jesus died. And Apollos said, say, what? What happened? He died. And he said, well, well then, well, what happened next? He said, well, he died on the cross. He fulfilled all the scripture on the way to the cross. And so we, we waited on Friday and then we waited on Sunday. Like, I, I wonder how long they teased this story out. And then they said on Sunday morning, and Apollos is like, yeah, you ever have that really great story and you finally get to share it with someone who's never heard it before? And they said, yeah, on Sunday morning, the women went up to check on the tomb to make sure everything was perfect and, and the stone was rolled away and Apollos' mind is probably just freaking out at this moment. Well, what happened? Where did they move the body? And, and he says, well, the, the ladies realized the, the body wasn't there. And then the angel of the Lord came to them and said, he is not here. He is risen from the dead. Go find Peter. Go find the rest of the disciples. And Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla are able to tell Apollos the story. And he's like, so where is he? I want to see him. And he says, well, he was here for a while. He met with his disciples. And then one day they led him up to a mountain. And he started to ascend unto heaven. And he told us, get this, he told us that if we go to Jerusalem and wait, that the Holy Spirit would come down. And Apollos says, what? what? That's real? That's already happened? He said, yeah. And he ascended. And we just, there was so many of us that were in there, we just stood there and we were just waiting. Because he said he was coming back, so we just waited. And we waited. And we just kept waiting. And then an angel came and said, what are you waiting for? Go to Jerusalem like he said. So then they're in Jerusalem and Peter and all the disciples are praying. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes down on them. And Apostle's like, what does that even mean? He goes, well, this is what happened. They started preaching. He's like, I know I do that. I preach too. They started preaching in languages they never learned. And people were able to hear the gospel in languages that they were grown up with, even though they had never been taught. You see, John had only known the baptism of, or Paulus only knew the baptism of John. So he knew a Messiah was coming. Aquila and Priscilla had the full rest of the story of the gospel. And now Apollos, they were able to teach him the full meaning of the gospel. What a privilege. You know how that story could have unfolded? They could have sat there in synagogue and be like, this guy's a hack. He's telling us to repent and that's it. And the coffee wasn't that good this morning. We should find another synagogue. <laughs> Did you see the tambourine? Totally offbeat today. We should go to another synagogue. Instead, they saw this need for someone who was passionate, who was competent, but they were missing the full truth of the gospel. And instead of criticizing what was happening, they stepped in and filled the need of discipleship. Look what happens next. Let me find it. Verse 27. 
when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome. And when he arrived, look what happened. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now the message is complete. He knew the baptism of John, and now he knew that the Messiah had come. You know how many people are this close to putting their trust in Jesus? How many people are this close? They, they, they might be passionate. They might, be, uh, they might have grown up in church. They might have understood to a certain level what, 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 uh, what Christ is about. But when there's a moment when someone steps in and say, let me show you what it means that the Christ was Jesus and Jesus is the Christ, uh, we're coming up on a season where people are acutely sensitive to receiving the message of Easter. That's why we make a big deal of it. Let me encourage you to pray about the person that's just that close from putting their full trust in Jesus. Because Aquila and Priscilla saw this need for discipleship and took the lead, now he is greatly helping those. He's powerfully refuting the Jews, and now they're showing that the Christ was Jesus. We're going to go into chapter 19 now. It says this, that it happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. So here's is where he always wanted to go, right? He's finally at Ephesus, and he finds some disciples. And look at how he starts the conversation in verse 2. He said to them, do you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's like, Paul, is this how you always start conversations? And they said, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We haven't even heard... Is, is, is the Holy Spirit a real thing, Paul? Paul was last in Ephesus on his way back from Corinth on his second missionary journey. Now he came from the east, arriving in Ephesus. And this is what he says. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Apparently, there was something about those, these disciples that prompted this question from Paul. This wasn't offensive. He was not being um, hostile. It was simply an observation based on what Paul probably perceived based on conversation, behavior, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Verse 3. And he said, into what then were you baptized? In other words, uh, who did you identify with? What did you commit to? What did you follow? And verse, uh, they said, into John's baptism. Isn't that the same phrase we just heard from Apollos? Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So by their reply, these Ephesian disciples didn't show that they didn't know much about God's nature as revealed in Jesus. They knew enough to be saved and to be students of Jesus. They were called disciples, but they didn't know much about all Jesus did for us, especially in his promise to send the Holy Spirit when he ascended to heaven. And this was the part that they were missing. This is the part that they didn't have access to or didn't understand yet. And part of knowing who Jesus is, is understanding the promise of the Holy Spirit. Aquila and Priscilla were there, were here with Paul for a year and a half in Corinth. And it's evident from his letters to Corinthians that he taught about the Holy Spirit. But these disciples were in the same place as Apollos was. They knew about John's baptism 
But Paul pointed out that John's baptism was one of repentance, pointing to Jesus, but completely left out the message of the Holy Spirit because that was not John's message to preach at the time. And so now here's Paul, and he gets to explain to them the reality, the presence of the Holy Spirit, similar to when Aquila and Priscilla got to explain it. So he goes and tells the whole story. He goes and walks through, I won't do it again, but he walks through the whole, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. He talks about the, 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 hundred, uh, the hundred people that uh, Jesus was a witness to after his resurrection. He talks about the time that he, uh, that he was on the hill and he uh, ascended. He went through all of that with them. And on hearing this in verse five, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had his hands laid on, let me read that again. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men in all. Having been completely prepared by their response to, pre, to the preaching of John the Baptist, they were now ready to embrace Jesus fully and were baptized in the name of Jesus. In the book of Acts, one of the most um, prescriptive parts of the book of Acts is this. When people believed, they identified with Jesus and his followers by being baptized. Every single time. We've seen it since Acts chapter 2. Nearly every chapter of the book of Acts so far, when someone commits their life to Jesus and recognizes that Jesus is their Lord and that Jesus is the Christ, there is the opportunity to baptize and it's immediate. They just do it out of obedience. One of the great things we get to do on Easter Sunday is we're going to have people baptized in our service. And I want you, it's one of the reasons you should be here on Easter Sunday is to celebrate with them. Uh, Jenny and Lori are going to get baptized on Easter Sunday, and we're so excited for them. Uh, both of them are going to get baptized. On, and, then, and then there's a possibility of three others. We might have five baptisms on Easter Sunday. And I got to tell you, for you to be here to cheer them on on this decision of faith is so monumental for them. It's so monumental for them to have people cheering them on on this massive step of faith. In the scriptures, it's very important that people get to choose to be baptized. That people come to the place in their faith where they're going all in on Jesus and they put everything in in terms of their faith in Jesus' hands and part of what we celebrate on baptism uh, Sunday like we'll have in two weeks is that they acknowledge their life before Christ. And then they get buried under the water. And I usually hold them there for a good 30, 40 seconds. <laughs> just to make sure it really takes. No, but when they go under the water, what does that symbolize? It symbolizes Jesus' death. It symbolizes them dying to their old life. And it symbolizes a vulnerability and surrender that I'm going down under, but I'm also coming back up. And when they arise out of that water, it is the symbol of Jesus' resurrection, our own resurrection into our new life. And if you've ever been here for a baptism Sunday, the first thing they get to hear coming out of the water is God's people rejoicing with them over this decision. I love it in the New Testament. Someone believes, and in the same breath, usually in the same sentence, and they were baptized. Here's there's these disciples. How many disciples are here, by the way? 
There's 12 of them. Luke's, Luke's interesting in his record uh, keeping. Um, Acts chapter 2, he's like, yep, there's, uh, there's three, about 3,000 souls that were saved. Acts chapter 3, he gives us the number. Acts chapter 5 gives us a number. Acts chapter 7, 8, he stops counting. He's like, I don't even know anymore. Multitudes and more and more and a great crowd, multitudes. But then here he comes back to a specific number. And I think what's interesting is this. He really wanted to capture, I think, a couple of things. Number one, every time someone gets baptized, it's a big deal. It doesn't matter if it's one or 12 or 3,000. It is a massive deal when someone gets baptized. I think the other thing he's trying to let us in on is this. Not everything that happened in the book of Acts was monumental. Not everything that happened in the book of Acts was thousands and thousands of people big. Sometimes it was just a small group, but that's still significant, which is greatly encouraging to you and I because most of our life, we don't get to celebrate the monumental things that happen in our life. Most of life is going through the daily grind and celebrating the wins as we see them when God shows up. And a lot of times they're small in comparison to the monumental grandeur stuff we see as miracles in scripture, but it's really important for you and I to take time to be grateful for those moments. He says there were about 12 men in all. I think the other thing he's trying to tell us here is that it wasn't a uh, widespread phenomenon that people were still holding on to John's baptism, but isolated events showed up where people still hadn't heard Even a few years later, they still hadn't heard that Jesus had died. They still hadn't fully embraced the fact that he was buried and that he resurrected from the dead and now he has arisen and there was witnesses and and now there was the promise of the Holy Spirit and now there was the reality of the Holy Spirit. I think we take for granted that because it happened at a certain point in time, that Peter was on his Twitter feed right away and went viral and everyone knew it. It just didn't happen that way. And I think it's a good lesson for us that we come to Easter and we we celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we just shouldn't take it for granted that everyone has embraced that reality and truth in their life. And so we come to Easter Sunday or this time of year when people are are uniquely uh, sensitive to the message of the gospel, we get to get all excited over it all over again. It leads us to this point that the gospel is about Jesus Christ and having a personal relationship with him. It's fair for each Christian today to consider if someone were to look at your life, would they notice a conspicuous absence or presence of the person and power of the Holy Spirit? Would there be evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life? These disciples needed, sensed their need to get right with God, and they knew the answer was in God's Messiah, but they had gone no further than that, and they needed to go all the way. So to trust in everything Jesus is, everything he had done, and to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe, well, now what? Well, in our text, we see three characteristics that should be present in our life as a, as a believer. There should be passion, discipleship, and evidence of the Holy Spirit. You believe, now what? Well, there should be passion in your life. 
There should be passion about the things of Jesus. I love Apollos so much because when we see Apollos come on the scene, he's competent in scriptures. He's mighty in scriptures. He's an eloquent man, and he had a, uh, there was a fervor in his spirit. He was so passionate about the things he did know, and he didn't have a complete understanding of everything, but whatever he understood, he was passionate about. And you might say, Daniel, I just, I don't know how to share the gospel with someone. I don't know how to invite someone. I don't know enough of the Bible. Well, there's two parts of that. First, you can always get more learned in the gospel. You can always read more. You can always study more. But whatever you have, God is going to bless. How many stories would you like about that? How many stories would you like that God will bless whatever you do have? You remember the boy with the, uh, the loaves and the fish? God simply blessed what he had. Remember the, the woman who could only reach the, the, the hem of the garment? He didn't have full access, but had the hem of the garment. God blessed what they had access to. The woman who gave two, the, two, the last two mites. How about in the Old Testament when Elijah goes and, and all there was with the, with the widow was uh, the, the jar of oil, and there was only a little bit of oil left, and Elijah says, make me something to eat first. Because he knew that God would bless whatever was left, like... Like, we don't have to have access to everything in scriptures to be competent, but if we're passionate about the things we did know, so I always simplify it this way, when you think about the gospel and what it's done for you in life, do you remember your life before Jesus? And do you remember your life after Jesus? This is what people want to know. They want to know what difference faith makes in our life, and it takes us being passionate about our faith. Um, so is there any passion? Uh, secondly, is there any discipleship? This text in is unique in that it shows us so many different ways that there's discipleship. First, there's Apollos, and, and all of a sudden, Aquila and Priscilla see that they have a need in their life. And instead of criticizing this man, instead of uh, disparaging him, instead of going to someone else and saying, can you believe this guy and what he doesn't know, they simply took the need and say, we're going to supplement what he doesn't know with what he does know. We're going to be the ones to disciple him. Then Apollos goes and he strengthens churches and he greatly refutes the Jewish people and he's able to proclaim that Christ uh, is Jesus. So the work and ministry of Apollos was made possible by, these, by this couple. We think about Paul and there was something in Paul's heart when he met this group of disciples and he just felt like there was something incomplete. So he asks the question and he says, uh, have you indeed received the Holy Spirit? He knew there was something missing. And when he found out that there was something missing, he didn't, he didn't criticize them. He didn't have them sit in the back. He didn't have them uh, uh, disassociate with them. He filled the need. At some point in our life, we should be discipling someone, bringing someone to Jesus, bringing someone to a fuller knowledge of who he is, and at the same time, we should be being discipled by someone else. And here's the thing. I don't have the time to do it all. This is you. This is us doing it together. So I'd encourage you to think about this. Who, who can you help in their faith right now? Who can you be Aquila and Priscilla? Who can you be someone that meets with someone on a regular basis, that guides them, that shows them? Uh, those of us who are, those of you who are older in your faith, who is someone that you could bring alongside in their faith? 
By the way, we're going to have some people baptized. That's a great opportunity for some of us to just get around one of these people and say, I just want to hear your story. I want to encourage you and be that person to disciple them. There should be passion, there should be discipleship, and there should be evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Have you received the Spirit since you believed, Paul said? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? It's a heavy question, isn't it? Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to end here in Galatians chapter 5 if you have your Bibles or if you have your your Bible app. I don't know the verse yet, so hang on with me. I didn't write it down. When I get to my Bible in the New Testament and I get to Corinthians and I see Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians, that's a good one. (laughs) Eloquent in the scriptures is what Apollos was. Um, I always say out loud, go eat popcorn because that helps me find Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. Galatians is right there. Galatians chapter 5. This is a beautiful passage when we think about the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I really want you to take inventory of your life. Uh, So you follow Jesus. So you bib and baptize. Now what? Well, there should be evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. There should be places in your life where you can see the Holy Spirit's evidence. I use this illustration all the time, but if you go in my work wastebasket, you can see the evidence of my diet. Or the lack of it. (laughs) And you can tell what I've done with my body based on what I throw away. And if there's a bunch of fast food wrappers and I tell you that I'm on my, that I'm being healthy, you can point to the evidence and say, are you you sure? Because it doesn't make sense based on the evidence, right? So what's the evidence in our life that the Holy Spirit is in our life? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free. In other words, he has freed us from the shackles, from the chains, the bondage in our life. Now it's up to us to stay free. What does that mean? It means we don't run back to those shackles. It means we don't run back to resentment. It means we don't run back to unforgiveness. It means we don't run back to revenge. It means that we leave those there, declare our freedom in Christ because he has made us free, and we walk in our freedom. We don't go back to the shackles that we had before because to do so voluntarily would be a slap in the face to what God has done for us, but it would also be the most weirdest Uh, uh, testimony for those who are observing our life. And so I want you to think about that. When, When you go back to resentment, go back to unforgiveness, you go back to pornography, you go back to addiction, you go back to whatever you were chained to, and then to voluntarily pick up all those chains. And because they're not bound anymore to you, you know what you have to do with those chains? You have to carry those chains with you. And so now in your freedom, because they're not on your feet and your arms anymore, you now walk with those shackles. And so people that come into your life and say, man, it's weird that you carry resentment with you. I know, I just do it on my own. Jesus freed me from it. I just carry it on my own now. It's weird that you're not forgiving. Like I thought, like, yeah, I know. I I just, I hold on to that now. I used to just let it drag from my body, but now I got to hold on to it. It's fine though. I got it. It's fine. 
It's weird that you're not loving it. Yeah, I know. I just, I hold on to that. You see how silly that is? So verse 1, Christ says, truly set us free. Now, make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. He goes on in verse, where is it at? Verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. There should be evidence in our life that the Holy Spirit is guiding us. Now, let me be careful. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we are sinless. It doesn't mean that we are trying to reach a standard by which no one has ever reached besides Jesus Christ himself. But it does mean we get to declare freedom and walk in that freedom. There should be passion in our life. There should be discipleship. We should be discipling someone, and we should have someone in our life that is discipling us. And there should be the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc@gmail.com. at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.